So, uh, I've titled this message tonight, The Misery of False Worship. As you know, we are studying the life of Moses this year, and we've only done two of those. Last week we had a special uh, guest, Scott Sauls, and uh, he did a great job, I thought, talking about scripture and spirituality. Uh, Tonight we're going to pick up our story with Moses, a very familiar story, the story of the ten plagues. Actually, we're going to cover nine of the ten plagues tonight, and uh, we're going to do the last plague and the Passover next week. So, here, here's, you know, I, I know this story, it stretches over several chapters. We don't have time to read all those chapters. I'm going to presuppose a little bit of basic understanding. Um, if you recall the story, Israel has been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. And as I said, I think it was the first week, the shock at the start of the book of Exodus is that Israel is in slavery in Egypt, and Egypt is the place that God himself had brought them to be saved from a famine. So right away you get this tension. God has brought his people into a place where they're suffering. And they're suffering now for 400 years. Then God raises up what seems like the perfect deliverer, a guy named Moses, who is miraculously preserved when he should have been killed as an infant boy. He's raised in Pharaoh's household, so he has all of the uh, knowledge and understanding of the Egyptian ways, and he's a known person in that palace, and yet things go disastrously wrong. He ends up murdering an Egyptian, and then even the Jewish people mock him, say, who made you Lord and God over us, a prince over us, and he runs out into the desert. And he's out in the desert, and then there's the burning bush. God speaks to him and said, even though you've been a disaster, I'm not done. And there are these great verbs in the beginning of Exodus where it says, the Lord saw, the Lord remembered, the Lord knew, and the Lord cared. And because of that, God is not done with his people. And so he tells Moses, go, speak to Pharaoh. But know this, Pharaoh is not going to listen to you. But in chapter 4, actually we should start with this, chapter 4, verse 21 and 23, and um, this is not on the scripture that I handed you, but it is on the outline, or you can look at it in your Bible. This is important to understand. This is what God tells Moses he needs to say. And this is why this whole story tonight is about worship and about the misery of false worship and about God's commitment to restore true worship to his people and in his world. The Lord said to Moses, this is Exodus 4, 21. The Lord says to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, and this is the critical verse, This is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go, so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. Now, I would say, at the beginning of this story, you need to understand this. Worship is a really big deal. 
Now, before you get offended at God saying, because you didn't do what I said, I'm going to kill your firstborn, before you get offended at that, you need to understand why God would say something like that. And the key is the verse before. Let my son go so that he may worship me. To understand this story, you need to understand the importance of worship. It's what mankind was made for. And this story is not just a battle between power, God showing off and Pharaoh trying to show off and harden his heart. It really is a battle about rival gods. You see, Pharaoh is a god in the Egyptian belief. But so are, is the serpent. And so is the Nile. As you're going to see as we go through these things, the various plagues are not random. They're not just kind of things that happened scientifically and Moses kind of knew it was going to happen, so he predicted it and wowed everybody, like they might tell you on Discovery Channel and other little silly shows that they'll have from time to time. No, these plagues tie in directly to the worship of Egypt. And God is out to destroy false worship, to restore true worship to his people and to his world. This story shows us the importance of worship. So let's read some of this story, and then we're going to go through this. Um, I'm going to jump now to Exodus chapter 5, and we're going to read uh, Exodus 5, and then one verse in Exodus 6, and then some verses in Exodus 7, right? And that, I think, will get us the most important parts of this story to be able to talk about it tonight. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And that feast is not just a party, it's worship. Once again, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt, that's Pharaoh, said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. See, Pharaoh thinks that worship is a waste of time. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. Verse 15. Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, Pharaoh, You are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. You're lazy. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks 
the foreman of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh and they said to them, that is to Moses and Aaron, the Lord look on you and judge. It means curse you because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Exodus 6, verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. Jump down to chapter 7, verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourself by working a miracle. And then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus saith the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink. And the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood, and there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. I think that's enough to get the, the idea, right? Strong stuff. Let's pray, and then we're going to dig into this, into this story. Lord, we do thank you. Thank you that in this passage, you don't just reveal your judgment, but you reveal who you are, and you reveal what you care about. 
<coughs> and we pray, Lord, that that would pierce our hearts and that it would draw us to you. And we ask this in your name. Amen. So like I said, to understand this, you first need to understand that this story is showing us the importance of worship, right? Over and over again, every time God speaks to Pharaoh, he makes it clear. Number one, let my people go so that they may worship me, so that they may serve me. And second, I'm going to do this so that you may know. God is in the business of revealing himself. And part of what he's revealing is that worship is central to his people. It's central to what human beings were made for. So rather than just get offended by God declaring a judgment on Pharaoh, what you need to see here is just how seriously God takes worship. And now it's not because he's insecure and he needs to be constantly flattered. You ever think about why does God want worship? The reason God wants worship is because worship is what he deserves. And worshiping the true God is what you were made for. We are never more fully ourselves. We are never more fully human than when we are worshiping God. And false worship is always dehumanizing and alienating, not only from God, but even from the creation and from each other. We are never more fully ourselves. We are never more fully human than when we are worshiping God. As Augustine, St. Augustine said 15 centuries ago, Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until we find rest in you. Do you believe that? Do you believe worship is just an add-on to your life, or do you believe that it's what you were made for? Pharaoh thinks it's a waste of time. He says, if you want to worship God, you're lazy. What really matters is work. And there's a lot of people, people that you know, maybe people in here right now, that would say, yeah, worship, that's all fine and good if I can get to it, if I can make the time. But I really have to work. That's really what's important. Maybe you've known parents like that or friends like that. But God says worship matters. And it worship matters so much that I'm willing to intervene and go to great lengths that true worship would be restored for my people. Worship is about what is ultimate in your life. If that's sort of this Christianese word and you've always thought, what is even worship? Worship is basically whatever is ultimate in your life, what you ultimately are trusting in, what you're ultimately resting in for significance, and I think another thing to think about is whatever you're resting in, hoping in, when things are difficult. A.W. Tozer said, worship, what you worship is what you think about when you have nothing else to do. It's the thing that sort of pops up. Sometimes it's the thing that you console yourself with. Well, I know this has happened. I know I didn't do this. I know I'm not like this, but at least, I have this, or at least I'm not like this. There are lots of ways you can get at trying to figure out what real worship is going on in your life. But here's the thing. You cannot live without worship. John Calvin said one time that our hearts are like idol factories, that we 
are never free of worshiping. Now, this is an important insight because there are a lot of different diagnoses about what is wrong with human beings. Some will tell you that it's a lack of education or a lack of understanding. Some will tell you that it's a lack of doing the right things. But the Bible says, while those are all important, ultimately, who you are is what you worship. What you worship. As a matter of fact, the Bible goes so far as to say that you become what you worship. It's this fascinating place in Isaiah chapter 44 where God talks about how the idols, these little statues, are blind. They don't have real eyes. They can't see. And then he says, those who worship them are blind. And what Isaiah is saying is, what you worship is what you're becoming. What you worship is key to who you are and what you're becoming because you are transformed by what you find beautiful. That's what that hymn, Hast Thou Heard Him, Seen Him, Known Him, is trying to get at. You are worshiping something. And the key to heart transformation is not believing that this way of life or that way of life is right and correct. It's what do you find beautiful? What it means to be human is to be animated, to be moving towards something that you love. We are shaped by our loves. And any understanding of human beings that doesn't give full justice to that is reductionistic and thus <coughs> idolatrous. You see, what idolatry tends to do, what false worship tends to do, is reduce human beings to less than what it really means to be human. Saying that all you need is this or all you need is that, when what you need ultimately is to find rest in the one you were made for. Now this story shows us not only the importance of worship, but the connection between false worship and human misery. Again, I would say, just as it's important for you to understand, worship is at the heart of what it means to be human, I would also say you don't understand, I don't understand rightly, the problems of our world and the misery in our world unless we see the connection to false worship. You know about... Gosh, maybe 30 years ago now, a guy named Alan Bloom wrote a book called The Closing of the American Mind. He was not a Christian. He was a professor at the University of Chicago. And it's a fascinating book. The, the first sentence is great. He says, as a professor who's been teaching English you know, for the last 30 years, the only absolute that I can count on is that absolutely every one of my freshman students is an absolute relativist. He said that 30 years ago. In other words, we live in a day and age where it's not very popular to say some religions are wrong and some religions are true. And there's a lot more we could say about that. We could get coffee and talk about that if you want. But here's one of the problems with this kind of relativistic thinking, pluralistic thinking, is that it fails to see the significant differences between the various world religions when it comes to the issue of suffering. And that's what we're talking about here. The Bible says human misery is connected to false worship. It's not just that the Israelites are suffering. They're suffering because of false worship. And soon the Egyptians are going to suffer more because of false worship. You know, Buddhism's origin story shows that it wants to rise above the level of suffering. How? 
by not thinking about it, right? The way you deal with suffering, suffering's a reality, but the way to deal with it is to close your eyes and smile. And thus the Buddha is always pictured that way, right? Closing his eyes, smiling. Well, that's one approach to suffering that fails to take into account what we worship. And false worship is connected to human misery. Hinduism says that suffering is karmic justice. I was reading an article recently about now that people have analyzed and all the studies and all the assessment of the relief that went after the 2004 tsunami. And without a doubt, the areas in India inhabited by the Dalits, by the untouchables, were not given the aid that they should have. And it wasn't coincidence. All the world's religions have to deal with the problem of suffering. Christianity is the only one with a God who has experienced human misery and suffering firsthand. Doesn't try to explain it away. Doesn't try to close his eyes. Jesus looks at the world and weeps. And that's important to understand. Misery is real. And worshiping falsely contributes to human misery, not just on a global scale. Don't just think about, you know, the fact that there have been more people killed in the 20th century in the name of false worship than in all the religious wars of the last 20 centuries. You know this, right? The worship of the state in fascism and in communism has led to more suffering and misery. And don't think that it's just about economics and it's just about political ideologies. It's about worship. It's about what is ultimate. I know it's maybe not popular to say that, but that's because there are a lot of people who want to reduce human beings to just being consumers or just being political beings. But we're so much more. We're made to worship, and false worship will always wreak havoc on our world, and it's still doing it. But it's not just on a, on a big scale. Think about even on a small scale, your own misery. Now, I would never go so far as to say that all the misery in your life is because of your false worship, but I will say that false worship in your life will bring misery, so that if what is ultimate to you is being well-liked, well, then I know that you're full of anxiety and misery because you've put your hope in something you can't control. I, I, I think I've, I don't know if I've mentioned this at RUF. Maybe I mentioned it just to the leadership team. But when you do RUF, you have to understand that your reputation is based upon what 18 and 19-year-olds think you said <laughs> and, and say to their friends. And you just have to kind of realize you're not in control of that. Sometimes I'll look at notes that people left behind um, where they wrote notes as I was talking, and I look and I'll be like, I know I didn't say that. <laughs> I know. But what can you do? you got to just let it go, right? Listen, don't put your hope in what people think about you. It will make you miserable. If that's ultimate to you, it will bring misery in your life. Pharaoh is tyrannical and power-thirsty because he worships gods of power. Do you see that? He says, who is this God? I don't know the Lord. The God of the Hebrews. Do you hear the mocking in him? 
Pharaoh is one who trusts power. Well, of course, he's the king of the most powerful nation in the world. And he has no respect for the God of his Hebrew slaves. Power is what's ultimate. God, even in his mercy, stoops to speak to Pharaoh in the language he understands. If power is what matters to you, Pharaoh, let me show you power. I'll throw down my staff. It will turn to a serpent, one of the most important gods. You know, the King Tut sarcophagus is the head of a cobra, right? The serpent's a very important power god in Egypt. And God says, I can speak to you in language you can understand. And still, Pharaoh hardens his heart. Now, a lot of people wrestle with that. Pharaoh hardens his heart. God hardens his heart. You know, actually, in this section of Exodus, half the time it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. Half the time it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. I think the way to understand that is God says there comes a point in which I will no longer keep softening your heart. I will let you go the way you want to go. Theologians call this judicial hardening. One of the greatest judgments in the Bible is when God gives you over to what you want to do. God gets in the way because he loves us. There are ten plagues because God keeps wanting to reveal who he is to Pharaoh, even in language he can understand, but Pharaoh continues to harden his heart. God, Pharaoh, sorry, can't even entertain the idea that the God of the Hebrew slaves could be the true God because he only cares about power. Now, false worship brings misery. It's worth thinking about your story, thinking about the way significant people in your life have brought misery because of their idolatry. Listen, work is a good thing, but if you turn it into an ultimate thing, children suffer. Right? Sexual love and attraction and desire is a good thing. But if you make it an ultimate thing that overrules all other commitments, children suffer. Think about your own idolatry. The way you're not the faithful friend you want to be because something else is more ultimate. Idolatry, false worship brings misery. You are both a sinner and you've been sinned against. And false worship is at the heart of all of it. But the most beautiful thing to see in this story is the way this story shows us God's commitment to restore true worship to his people and in his world. You see, this is more than just a showdown. As I said, the plagues and the signs are revelation. This is what you see here in chapter 5, verse 2. Pharaoh mocks the Lord. He says, who is the Lord? It's not a request for information. It's not an honest question. It's a dare. It's a dare. Pharaoh says, I do not know the Lord. Pharaoh's not saying, I've never heard of him. He uses the word know that means intimate relationship. What he's saying is, this God, so-called, is irrelevant to me, commands no respect from me. And that's amazing because he worships a whole pantheon of gods. But why would he give attention to a God of slaves? 
But notice what God says down in chapter 7, verse 5. The Egyptians, God says, shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. And Moses is told down in verse 17 to explicitly say, look, it's not just, hey, Moses, go strike the Nile so that it turns to blood. No, God says, say this, reveal this about me. Look at verse 17. Thus saith the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. And behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. Again, by this you shall know I am the Lord, over and over and over again. God is not just saying, strike him down. He could have done that without revealing who he is, but over and over and over again, he's saying, by this you will know. And you know one of the most fascinating things about the Exodus story? There are Egyptians who come out with Israel. It's one of the things I loved about that that old Disney cartoon, The Prince of Egypt, is they actually picture that. It's it's, it's sort of this little detail that most people don't remember from the story, but it's an important part of the story. It's not just about one race, Israel. It's about those who align themselves with the God of Isaac, Abraham, and Jacob. They can be part of the community too. And there are some Egyptians who come out, who put their trust in the true God, because God has revealed himself. And he, and he says, basically, my power, I don't even have, to, I don't even have to, to exercise much power to show you how much more powerful I am than the Nile. I'm going to basically put my finger in it, and it's going to turn to blood. But notice this, and this is an important thing. God is not only showing that he has more power, he's not only revealing that he is the Lord, He's also revealing that he has a purpose for creation. You see, when Pharaoh opposes God and God's purposes, what God does in so many of these plagues is he undoes creation. Creation doesn't work (coughs) like it's supposed to. Things get out of whack. (coughs) I'll take that water. (coughs) Thank you. God undoes creation. You remember when sin came into the world, this connection, this cooperation between man and nature was broken. And now nature and man fight against each other. And now God, in dealing with this sin of sins, saying, I'm God, Pharaoh saying, I'm God, And who is this God of the Hebrews? I don't even know him. What does God do? He raises up nature to attack man rather than to serve him. In all of this, God is bringing his salvation purposes forward. The purposes that one day will be fulfilled in Christ. And the purpose that will rescue all creation from its present frustration God is showing even now that I can use the creation to bring forward my redemptive purposes. And one day, the creation will be released from its frustration 
when all things are made right, and when true worship is restored. Peter ends, Bible commentator says this, God arms himself with creation to bring creation to its intended goal. Because God's goal is bigger than Israel just getting out of Egypt. His goal is for Israel to be able to worship. And one of the things you're going to see as the story goes on this semester is that the plagues are not enough. Punishment is not enough to change our hearts. But one day, there will be true healing. And on the day when all things are made right, not only will there be true healing, not only will our tears be wiped away from our eyes for those that know Jesus, but also true worship will be restored. And again, do you understand, true worship and true healing always go together. They're central to the Bible's picture of the future. Yes, God is concerned about their misery, but worship is a big deal, and Israel needs a deep healing. You remember, of course, even after they're set free from the Egyptians, they get out into the desert, and what do they do? They want to go back to Egypt? And as soon as they get to Mount Sinai, God calls Moses to go up the mountain to get more of his blessed revelation. And what do they do? They make a golden calf and they worship it. Slavery didn't heal them of their idolatry. Seeing God strike down Egypt with these plagues didn't heal them of their idolatry. It's still in their hearts. It's still in their hearts. Because punishment is not enough to break a hard heart. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 2.4 that it's God's kindness and mercy that is designed to lead to repentance. One of my favorite quotes by the great preacher Charles Spurgeon is this. Listen to this. He said, while I regarded God as a tyrant, I thought my sin a trifle. But when I knew him to be my father, then I mourned that I could ever have kicked against him. When I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I smote my breast to think that I ever could have rebelled against one who loved me so and sought my good. Do you wonder why sin has such power in your life? It may be because you don't understand deep enough the kindness and mercy of God. You know, these plagues build to a grand conclusion, the death of the firstborn. We're going to look at this more next week. But here, we need to at least say this. What all of these plagues couldn't do, heal and restore true worship, God does in Jesus. False worship brings misery. God is out to battle with false worship in our world and in our hearts, but his methods are often strange and confusing, even frustrating. You see it in this story. As soon as Moses starts to talk to Pharaoh, things get worse for Israel. They curse God's deliverer, and then God's own deliverer curses God and says, why have you done this evil? God's deliverance takes an excruciatingly long time to come. And the beginning of its coming makes things worse for Israel. And all I can say is sometimes God's deliverance does take a very confusing form, especially when you're in the middle of it. And you have to ask, why does God do it this way? 
But I hope that the story that screams at us from this passage is, why does God deliver these kind of ungrateful people anyway? Moses is the first cursed deliverer, but he's not the last. God will one day send his son Jesus to be cursed by the people he came to save, to be crucified on a tree. God had said in Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And the Jews understood Roman crucifixion to be that curse manifest. But as Paul explains in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. Jesus was not just cursed by the crowd when they shouted crucify him. He was cursed by God himself as he took all the failure and evil that we had done upon himself. God specializes in bringing deliverance when it seems all is lost, when Pharaoh has hardened his heart, when Moses has become completely dejected, cursed by the people he came to save, and Moses tells God, you're evil. And then God in chapter 6 says, okay, now's the time. Isn't that unbelievable? Okay, now's the time. Now's the time. God continually defies expectations and confuses us, doesn't it? It's one of the reasons I wanted us to sing that last hymn, uh, or almost last hymn, I Asked the Lord. It's a hymn that invites you to see that God is bigger and more confusing than you ever might have thought. But it is a hymn that reminds us that while God's ways are confusing, the one thing we know is that God loves his children and will do whatever it takes to heal them of their false worship. This is what he demonstrated on the cross. God loves his children and do, will do whatever it takes to heal them of their false worship, even if it means the death of his firstborn. Even if it means taking you through trials that will bring you to a deeper dependence Upon him alone. John Newton, who wrote that hymn, I Asked the Lord That I Might Grow, he also wrote Amazing Grace. A lot of hymns. But the guy that celebrates Amazing Grace understands that grace to sometimes come in painful forms. And I wonder if we have a truncated view of grace. We only think God's grace can come when it makes us happy. But God demonstrates that he's willing to do whatever it takes to heal us of our false worship. That's what Jesus dying on the cross is all about. And he said one time, John Newton said this one time, he said, our inability to love God and to serve God in our own strength is something that no one ever learned just by being told it. Sometimes you have to learn it by experience. And God is good enough to do that. Let's pray together.